Welcome to the Human Data Era, special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. By studying human genetics, scientists discovered mechanisms that, when defective, cause disease. While this type of data is powerful, additional information can provide more insight on the human condition. Researchers and clinicians can now go beyond genetics, combining proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and environmental factors into a broad category of human data. In the series, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the potential of human data and the important transition scientists and clinicians are making to incorporate this wealth of information into drug research and development. By understanding disease risk through the information found in a person's genome, scientists can develop better therapeutics and clinicians can treat their patients more effectively. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Cowdy Stefanson, founder and CEO of Decode Genetics, a biopharmaceutical company based in Reykjavik, Iceland, that collects and analyzes genealogical, medical, and genomic data at a national scale in order to identify variants that influence disease risk. We discuss his pioneering work in population-scale genetics, its applications in precision medicine and the healthcare system, and the difficult questions that access to these data raise. Hi, Cody. I'm really pleased to be with you here today. You're one of the great pioneers of using human genetics and discovering genes that influence phenotypes. Tell us a little bit about your background and how is it that you gravitated towards becoming a human geneticist? In my former life, I was a neurologist and a neuropathologist. And besides my clinical work, I was working on neurological diseases using molecular biology, protein, biochemistry, and I wasn't particularly successful. Then one day, we isolated a protein from human brain, cloned the transcript, and sequenced the cDNA. When we localized the gene through a chromosome, it turned out to be in the middle of a disease gene. And that was the first step that I took towards human genetics. It became a very intense focus to figure out how we could go to the source information in the genome to figure out our human disease, particularly diseases of the brain. You started out University of Chicago, I believe, and then you moved to Harvard Medical School. When you made this decision to jump in with both feet into human genetics, you moved to Iceland, which to most people is not necessarily an obvious choice. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what drove that decision? First of all, at the time, it was really difficult to put together a large enough group to make a meaningful contribution to human genetics within a university. And secondly, I was absolutely convinced that the way to do human genetics would be to gather as much data as you could, both on the diversity in sequence and on phenotype, 
without having a focus on a particular disease or a particular phenotype. It turned out to be a reasonable approach because you could use data on individuals that were cases in one instance as controls in another. This was not just fairly effective, it was economical. In addition to that, Iceland is a founded population, which means that a relatively large percentage of the current population is accounted for by a relatively small number of ancestors. That means that a sequence variant that was rare amongst the founders is likely to be relatively common in the current day population, and this has turned out to be a particularly valuable attribute for us. One of the things I've learned from you is the distinction between rare variants and common variants and why the rare variants are so useful from the point of view of target discovery. Can you give us a little bit of a primer, if you will, on rare and common variants and what the particular utility of the rare variants tends to be? The common variants are common either because they came with us out of Africa or they have been under positive control or both. The rare variants are rare because they are recent. Rarity and novelty are basically synonymous in this kind of human genetics or they have been under negative selection of both. It's interesting that rare variants that we can find are almost invariably with very large effect, but that does not mean that there are not rare variants with small effect. The only ones we have power to find are the ones that have large effect. And most of the rare variants with large effect that we and others have been discovering up until now have been in coding sequence. And when you have variants in coding sequence, it is very likely that the effect of the variant is mediated through the protein encoded by the gene where the variant sits. But that is not without exceptions. For example, if you take the coding sequence variants in the APOE gene, they affect level of about 62 proteins in blood. So it is fairly dangerous to assume that those variants mediate their effect necessarily through APOE. We have a paper describing the whole genome sequencing of 150,000 genomes from the UK Biobank. And one of the things that we were focusing on there is to figure out whether whole genome sequencing, which is relatively expensive, makes sense when you can sequence the whole exome for just a fraction of the cost. It turns out that when you look at the 1% of the genome, that is least tolerant to sequence diversity, about 87% of it is outside of the coating sequence of genes. So it is in sequences that are not coating, but definitely of great functional importance. I was flipping through an issue of nature, and they had a chart of the most productive scientists in the world. You were in the top five that they listed. You've been doing this now for 25 years. You've made enormous numbers of findings studying human diversity. What's your favorite discovery? What's the thing that you think is your most important insight? The one that has me most excited is usually the one that we made most recently. But if I take a step back and ask what have these 25 years of work been telling us, the most interesting message is the definition of the challenge that is before us. There's enormous amount of data on the sequence of the human genome available now, and there have been absolutely astonishing number of attempts to correlate variants in the sequence with diseases. 
But I'm more impressed with what we have yet to discover, how little we have gotten out to this. We can sequence 14,500 whole genomes in one month, and the total capacity to sequence genomes in the world is enormous. But to figure out a way to make the information that lies in it meaningful when it comes to shedding light on the nature of disease and give us an opportunity to treat them, we have to begin to bridge this gap. Human diversity does not just lie in the diversity in the sequence of ACGs and Ts. It also lies in the interaction of the phenotype rooted in the sequence with the environment. The big task at hand now is to figure out systematic ways of capturing the environmental influences and keep in mind that common diseases, most of them diseases of relatively late onset, and almost all of them have both genetic and environmental component. We have to put together some sort of a net to catch the environmental influences. We've been working together to use the information you gather on human diversity to identify new drug targets, validate previously identified candidate drug targets, identify biomarkers, identify the optimal patients for clinical trials, and so on. Which of those do you think human diversity has the greatest long-term potential? Where do you see the most important application? The most important application that is going to have the lasting effect on the industry will be stratifying patients into clinical trial and matching medicines to individuals. It will lie in the application of precision medicine. Human diversity, it is basically the output of an experiment that has been going on for 250,000 years since modern man arrived on the scene and has been then modified through random change and then selection. When you look at the ability that we have to read into this diversity in exquisite detail, there is hardly any aspect of human biology or pathobiology that will not be elucidated in one way or another by using these methods. This approach is going to give us a lot of targets. It is also going to be incredibly important when it comes to clinical development. When Amgen first acquired Decode, the focus was on discovering new targets and validating targets. In cancer biology, there's been a very similar approach of sequencing a lot of tumors, looking for mutant gene that might be drivers, and then developing medicines that target those driver genes. We've seen spectacular successes in oncology there. With the human germline genetics, we've also identified targets that contribute to disease. But it's my impression, at least, that the drive is not as strong right now as what you see in oncology. Why do you think that is? All cancer is rooted in some sort of a mutation of a large effect. Once you begin to develop a drug, the idea is to destroy the cancer. Once you find a mutation in a gene that is expressed in the heart and causes a disease there, the goal is not to destroy the heart. It is to modify this in some way or another. So this is an unfair comparison. Cancer is always going to be a hatchet of other therapeutic areas when it comes to the use of mutations to direct treatment. Human diversity can influence different aspects of human disease. 
One that I have in mind right now is the distinction between incidence and progression. Alzheimer's is a really interesting example of that faulty processing of the Alzheimer's precursor protein underlies Alzheimer's disease. The accumulation of, of the A-beta fragment is a driver of disease. That's disease incidence. Once that fragment is accumulating in the realm of disease progression, targeting that has not been particularly successful. How do you think about disease incidence versus disease progression? Do you think that the same genes are involved in incidence and progression? Human genetics tends to reveal genes that control incidence. How do we go about finding progression genes if they're going to be different? It isn't necessarily certain that there are sequence variants that influence the progression. It is definitely possible that just once the initiation has taken place, that there are processes that are independent, at least of the genetics of onset, that take over. And there may not be an awful lot of sequence diversity behind differences in progression. Alzheimer's disease is an excellent example. The deposition of amyloid, which we look at as the initiation process, it can be stopped. The amyloid plaque can be dissolved, but the cognitive decline of the disease continues. It is somewhat similar to what you see in chronic traumatic brain injury. The boxer who receives many blows to the head retires from boxing and receives no more blows to the head. Nevertheless, the cognitive decline continues. We have to look at the onset and the progression as, as distinct phenomena. We have recently been looking at it in the context of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, where we have been not just looking at genetic risk, so-called polygenic risk scores, but also looking at risk scores assessed with proteins in blood. The two of them seem to be somewhat uncorrelated. Once the atherosclerosis begins, there seem to be forces taking over that are independent of, of the onset, which is fascinating. It is going to give an awful lot of opportunities of making new discoveries about the nature of disease that hopefully are going to lead to new methods to contain them. What do you view as the major conceptual limitations, as opposed to technical limitations, of using human data and human genetics to drive the discovery and development of new medicines? I would phrase the, the questions differently. What are the conceptual limitations to understanding human biology and pathobiology? Because then subsequent discovery and development of drugs, that's a little bit of a different task. Where we have the greatest need for more data, a longitudinal data on people when they are healthy, then data as time passes and they begin to collect diseases. We are particularly in need of data like proteomics data, transcriptomic data, metabolomic data to map this path from normal function of an organ to an organ with a disease. In addition to that, we are in desperate need of more data on uh, sequence diversity in people of other origins than European origins. We have very little data on people of African origin, Asian origin, etc. And we need that to be able to claim that we have the full diversity of the human genome. When decode sequence my genome close to five years ago now, 
you discovered a human disease susceptibility lurking in my genome. As gathering human data on people becomes more widespread, finding susceptibilities in people's genomes as they're being sequenced, many people would prefer not to know. A poignant example is Nancy Wexler, who spearheaded a consortium to discover the Huntington gene. Her father had Huntington's disease, so she had a 50% chance of having it. When the gene was discovered, she did not want the test done on her DNA. She didn't want to know if she was going to get that disease. As doctors begin using human data more and more, how do we respect that right of a patient not to know if they have a particular susceptibility? We have recently looked about 200,000 genomes from the UK Biobank, from Iceland, from Denmark, from Norway, and Sweden. And about 4% of the population has a mutation that is actionable. A mutation in gene that clinical geneticists has determined is a mutation that causes a serious disease that we can do something about. So 4% of the population, according to our assessment, have a mutation that could lead to very serious disease or death if nothing is done about it. And the big question is, what do we do about it? Should we always report incidental finding of that sort? There is a law in Iceland that says that if you could save somebody's life who has fallen, for example, into the harbor, it is your legal obligation to try to save them. It is probably much more likely that you're going to die from many of these mutations than you would die from falling into the harbor. It's a difficult dilemma. I know of one instance where integrated delivery network in the United States offered people to uh, learn about variant in the genome that causes a serious disease, and only 9% responded to it. I personally feel that we should use this data. We should use them to do the healthcare system more effective, to decrease the burden of serious disease in society. And then the question is, is the right not to know of the carriers of this mutation, does that weigh heavier than the needs of the healthcare system and the desire to decrease the, the cost of healthcare, etc.? If it is a mutation that causes a disease that you can do something about, I am inclined to believe that it is our obligation to report. Let's say I was a primary care physician and my patient had a BRCA1 mutation. So I know that they had very high lifetime risk of getting breast cancer, but they elected to not know anything that's embedded in their genes. Now I have to care for that patient knowing they have that risk. How do I appropriately care for that patient, knowing they have this ticking time bomb that they don't want to know about? And how does that not influence my care? We have a high-level overview of the genome of basically everyone in Iceland. And we could infer that there are about 2,500 Icelanders who have a BRCA2 mutation. Women with BRCA2 mutation have about 86% probability of developing breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or a serious cancer that may be lethal. According to the interpretation of the healthcare system of laws in Iceland, we were not allowed to report this to the carriers of the mutation. So what we did is put up a website 
where people could ask about whether they were carriers or not. And only about 25% of their people at risk had actually asked about their carrier status after a year and a half had passed. This is really a particularly pressing and important question, and I don't think that there is only one answer to it. The answers are going to be very personal. This highlights the importance of educating patients about what this information means and what its implications are. Education is also critical for the scientists in terms of how to use this data. What do you think are key skills that are needed for scientists to apply human genetics to the discovery of medicines? Human genetics bridges the gap between biology and statistics and mathematics. When you generate an overlap between two disciplines, it opens up the possibility of spectacular discoveries. When you begin to put genetics or the study of human diversity into context, it clearly raises some philosophical questions. When it comes to our own health, do we have obligation towards society? Can we be expected to know something about our weaknesses, our liabilities? Because if we don't, it's going to be costly to society. Another thing is, how should we deal with information that lies in the healthcare system and could be used to make discoveries that are being turned into methods to diagnose, treat, and prevent disease? So when you go to a hospital with a disease, the probability that a hospital will be able to help you is solely dependent on the fact that those who came before you with the same disease allowed the information on them being used to make discoveries. Should you have permission to take advantage of what is there because of the people who came before you, as you say, no, you cannot use information on me to make further discoveries to advance the healthcare system. These are complicated ethical questions that are becoming very important for society because we have started to look at access to healthcare as human right. And the question is whether that right should come with obligation. I'm going to conclude here by putting you on the spot for a couple of predictions. When do you think it will be the case, at least in developed countries, that when somebody is born, their genome will be sequenced just as a matter of routine? Probably within the next 10 years. We are being promised now by several companies that the cost of sequencing a genome next year will be down to $100. It is very likely, therefore, that within the next five years, it will be down to $50 a genome. It is reasonable for the healthcare system to have the genome sequenced. Unfortunately, this prediction only applies to the developed parts of the world. When new technological advances come, they, in, in the beginning at least, increase the healthcare disparity. We have to begin to bridge that gap. Let's say I go to the doctor tomorrow because I developed a peripheral neuropathy, for example. When do you think it will be the case that the first thing the doctor will do is consult my genomic sequence to see if there's any clue to this ailment that's lurking in my genes. I think this will happen within the next five to ten years. The diseases that are purely genetic are mostly the diseases of early age, 
the most common diseases in our society are of late onset. There you have the interplay between the environment and the genome. But still, when you look at the sequence of the entire genome, you develop polygenic risk scores that are based on a large number of variants. But this is already beginning to happen. When patients show up in doctor's office with a difficult diagnostic problem, it is becoming common that the doctor sends uh, blood samples for DNA sequencing. Cody, this has been an extremely enjoyable conversation. You are probably the person who's thought more about human diversity and its implications for human health and human phenotype than anybody else in the world. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Ray. Thank you for listening to the final episode of the Human Data Era. And thanks again to Kauri Stefanson, founder and CEO of Decode Genetics. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Human Data Q&A webinar discussion on November 16th, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. To keep up to date with this podcast and learn about future series, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.